Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, so glad you are here. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'll be reading uh, verses 13 through 21 here in just a little bit. The other day I was reading this article about the ru- some of the rules and protocols that the British royal family have to follow just because of the position that they hold. There's rules that, I mean, they seem silly to us because, you know, we're not part of that world. But for them, it's just par for the course because it's part of their lifestyle. They were born into that lifestyle. I was reading about this rule that, you know, you're not sure who has to wear tiaras and crowns and things like that, but the royal family ladies can't wear tiaras until they're at least 18 years old, and then you can't wear a tiara until it's after 5 p.m., or, or if there's a wedding before that. You can wear one to a wedding, but you can't wear one otherwise before 5 p.m. Now, that's not a rule most of you have to worry about, and I don't know how many here wear tiaras, but, you know, that's just one of them strange rules. There's rules about them not giving autographs because they might have their signature forged. There's rules about them, about the way that they enter into rooms. Like, there's a certain order that they have to enter into rooms. I mean, they don't just all pile in at once. One part of the family goes first, and then the next. I mean, they seem like silly rules to us. I mean, because the pro- there's protocols that they have to follow. There's, you know, in their public appearances, there's protocols. In their private lives, there's rules that they have to follow. It, see, that they have to live a certain lifestyle, and it's because of the position that they're in. Their lifestyle is expected because of the position that they are in. In studying 1 Peter, you know, Peter here, he he tells us about who we are as Christian pilgrims, that we are elect exiles, and there are certain ways for us to conduct ourselves because of the positions that we hold, but the position that we hold. Because this world is not our home. We are Christian pilgrims. We are elect exiles that are dispersed throughout the world. We've been given a new life in Christ. We now belong to Him, and because of who we are, there's an expectation of how we are to live our life. So what I want us to take away from today is what is our position and why, because of our position, how do we live as these Christian pilgrims? What is the lifestyle that is expected of us? How are we to conduct ourselves because of who we are, because of our position? And so we want to consider what that looks like today as I read from verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read this passage. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the coming, at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance, your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, please take these truths and apply them to our lives. And Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, how do we live as Christian pilgrims on this earth? I pray, Lord, we would see what we need to do to align ourselves to your holy word because it is your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So verse 13 in our passage begins with the word, therefore. And that word, therefore, whenever you see it in Scripture, you've heard the cliche, find out what it's there for. But the word, therefore, indicates that what is being written now is a consequence of what is written beforehand. And so he has been saying thus far that we are Christian pilgrims that have been getting certain blessings, and therefore, with those certain blessings, we have certain responsibilities. You have been given new life in Christ. So now live like you have new life in Christ. Now, I want to make clear, though, the order of things. Because the lifestyle that is a, is a result of being given the new life. We do not receive the new life when we first, if we would first adopt the lifestyle, because you cannot adopt the lifestyle without first being given new life in Christ. You cannot live this out without Christ, without being gifted with that new life. I mean, you cannot clean yourself up enough to be perfected before Christ any more than you can run around the world in, in, in one minute. You receive the new life that is given in Christ. He gives you the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with His Holy Spirit. You are given a new life that is no longer compatible with this world. And that's when you start living it out. And this lifestyle, based on the position of what, that we're in, is described in the passage that we have read. Now something, you, if you ever read 1 Peter, something you're going to notice is he just packs in a whole lot of truth. He says a whole lot of things in a short amount of verses. And so sometimes it's hard to pick out what his main points are because he is just describing it with such detail. So not to get too technical with grammar and things like that, but within the passage that we read, there are three commands, and then everything else is based around those three commands. And so those three commands are what highlight what this lifestyle is that we are called to as Christian pilgrims. So what are these marks of the lifestyle of a Christian pilgrim? Well, first, we see that our thinking is set on future hope. Our thinking is set on future hope. Verse 13 talks about the fact that Christians are given a new mindset, and that mindset is based on the future hope that we have in Christ. And so Peter says we have to determine within ourselves that we are going to take on the mindset that our hope is not going to be placed on the things of the world. It's not going to be placed on earthly things. We're not going to, we're not going to put our hope 
in the world to provide for us, to protect us, to deliver us from anything. There is nothing in this world that can be of any help to us. Instead, when we need encouragement, when we need strength, when we need peace, when we need hope to carry on through the journey that we are on in this life, we don't look to family, we don't look to possessions, we don't look to our jobs, we look to Christ, we look to who we are in Christ, we look to what we have been blessed with in Christ, we look to the ultimate future to which we are headed, heaven, being in heaven with Christ. Now I find it very interesting, and maybe it's, it's just a tale of the day and age that we live in. In ages past, the one thing that kept Christians going, that encouraged them, that, that just allowed them to deal with the issues of life, the one thing that they clung to was the promise of heaven and eternal life. They looked forward to heaven and eternal life. They looked forward to streets of gold. They looked forward to being free from sickness and death and things like that. Christians in the past clung to these wonderful promises that are found in the Bible. But now, we have become so worldly where all of our concentration is in the here and now and what the world has to offer us in the here and the now. We become so worldly where it's the things of the earth that catch our attention constantly. And we don't even think about eternity. We don't, we don't give heaven a second glance. We are too busy looking down at our phones that we don't put the effort into looking up into heaven. And then we wonder why we feel so hopeless and helpless. Why do I feel this way? Where is it you're putting your hope? Where is it you're putting all of your energy? It's in the things of the world. And the world is not going to help you. Our minds are not where they are supposed to be. Imagine if a basketball player was out on the court and they're playing this important division rivalry game. And the entire time that this player is out on the court, his mind is on his girlfriend, his mind is on his car, his mind is on his favorite TV show, things like that. What's going to happen? He's going to miss his shots, he's going to miss his blocks, he's going to miss his rebounds, all because his head wasn't in the game. His mind wasn't in the right place. Christians, we got to get our heads in the game. We have got to get our minds right. We have got to stop giving our excuses of why when we're under stress and we're under pressure, we look to earthly distractions to try and numb us, to distract us from our problems instead of putting our mind to where the only answer lies. With God through Christ and the future blessings that we have. You see, our hope is not in our social media, favorite social media sites. Our hope is not in our favorite movies. Our hope is not in our favorite songs. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life. And that changes our mindset. And once our mindset is right, okay, we can live from there. We can 
handle that. And there's, there's two aspects of, of this mindset. When we set our hope to future glory, this is what we find. When we set our hope to future glory, we find first that we are teachable and prepared. We are teachable and prepared. Verse 13 says that, you know, it talks about setting our minds on the future hope. It's going to prepare our minds for action. That's the ESV version. You know, some of your versions might say, gird up your loins, which is like a literal translation, gird up the loins of your mind. It's telling you to be ready and prepared. You see, when our mind is set on the future hope that is found in Jesus Christ, we are ready to receive from the Lord whatever lessons he has for us so we can learn from the word, learn how to live from the word. And he uses his word, he uses life. He is preparing us. He is preparing our mind. We become teachable. When our mind is set right, look, I, my hope is in Jesus Christ. I'm going to heaven one day. This world is not my home. This world is not able to offer me anything. I become teachable. And when I'm teachable, then I'm prepared to put whatever it is God teaches me into action. When our mind is right. When our mind is set. When we are prepared and we're teachable, we're prepared to put these things into action. Whatever it is the Lord teaches us. I don't know if you've ever coached kids in, in sports, but you can tell which ones have the right mindset and they're listening intently and they're learning. You, can, you know the ones that are teachable because then they're able to take what they learn in practice and put it into the game. They're able to put it into action in the game. You taught them in practice, they're able to do it in the game. Why? Because their minds were right. They had the right mindset. When we set our hope in our life in Christ, when we set our hope in that of eternity, we are teachable and we are prepared to put his word into action. But next, we also find that our mind is disciplined and self-controlled. When our mind is in the right place, we become disciplined and self-controlled. Verse 13, it talks about being sober-minded. It means that our minds are well-balanced and we were able to exercise some self-control. When our minds are set on the future hope that's found in Christ, our minds are disciplined to look at the world, to look at the events of the world from a biblical worldview and to be able to live out that worldview. When our minds are right, when our minds are set on our future hope, <coughs> we're in control of our thinking and our actions spring from what it is we are thinking. We, we're not irrational. We, we're not acting the fool. Or we could, even, we could even say with this self-control is we are not letting our emotions drive us and move us and determine our course. But it's God's Word. It's His promises that move us and drive us. And so this is a call to let our minds be settled on Christ and live according to His truth knowing our final destination, knowing ultimately what our end is going to be, where we are headed. That's part of the lifestyle. Our minds, our thinking is set on that future hope. But there's another part of this lifestyle that Peter talks about. Secondly, today, we see that our conduct is based on expected holiness. Our conduct is based on expected holiness. In verses 14 through 16, Peter discusses the fact that Christians are to, leave, to live holy lives. 
Now, you know, we, we hear that all the time. It's so much so that maybe we've turned it into a cliche and yeah, 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 I'm supposed to live holy, yeah, whatever. And we don't give it really a second thought. I mean, you, yeah, yeah, because we don't even know what that means. Yeah, live holy, all right, whatever. That means going to church and, and things like that. Well, I mean, that, that's part of it, obviously, but, but what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to live holy? Well, the term itself means to be separate, to be set apart. You're set apart from the world. It means that you're not like everybody else. It means you're different, in a good way, different, right? And, and, and your lifestyle reflects you being different from the world. I don't live like the world. I don't think like the world. I don't act like the world. I, you know, and, and so what it means for us, how Peter's tying everything together here, is that we have been given this new life in Christ. We're these elect exiles. We're Christian pilgrims. And so we might, yeah, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. You know, to use that Christian cliche. cliche. We're in the world, but the world is not in us. We're different from the world. We're different from the world's systems. We're different from the powers that run this world. And so we think differently from the world. We act differently from the world. We make choices differently from the world, all because we're holy, we're separate, we're set apart from the world. Now, Dale Moody put it this way to show that you know, the world is not to have influence on us. This is kind of an illustration that Dale Moody used. So he said, you know, a ship lives in water, but if water was to get in the ship, it would sink to the bottom. A Christian is in the world. A Christian may live in the world, but if the world gets in the Christian, well, what's going to happen? You could say they're going to sink to the bottom, I suppose. If the way that the world thinks and acts influences you more than God and the Spirit and His Word, you're not living in holiness. If the world is what influences you the most, you are not living in holiness. If the wickedness of this world and the evil of this world and the ways of this world and the decisions of this world do not grieve you instead of attracting you, if this, those things of the world are your guilty pleasures, then you're not living in holiness. The ways of the world ought to grieve us. It ought to sometimes sicken us and cause us to run to God e even more. Now, I don't ever watch award shows, but on the, on the news, it was, it was all over the news. Last week, the Grammy Awards took place. I mean, all, the, all these awards are nothing but a bunch of worldly, hell-bound celebrities patting each other on the back, is what all these award shows are. But okay, so the Grammy Awards, that's for music. It was last week. During the show, these artists, and let me put that in air quotes, they call themselves artists, but they, they sure ain't art. So the, these people, Sam Smith and Kim Petras, they did a performance of a song called Unholy. And in this performance, Smith was dressed like the devil, you know, like the cliched version of the devil. And the stage was filled with all red lighting. There were dancers in skimpy outfits dressed as horror movie characters dancing in cages. They were surrounded by a bunch of transgender people. 
and all of this was going on, it literally was a worship service to Satan. I mean, and I am not, you know, yes, sometimes you think preachers, because they're preachers, you know, they, they speak in hyperbole, they kind of expand things a little bit. No, this was literally a worship service to Satan. And if you heard about it, or if you watched it, and you were not utterly disgusted by it, if you were not grieved by it, guess what? You're not living separate from the world. I mean, if that does, and even if you never heard of it until I described it to you, that ought to disgust you. And yeah, you pray for them people, right? But if it doesn't bother you, well, guess what? That means you might be a little worldly. And here's the thing. At the Grammys were all sorts of Christian artists because they do have a Christian category. Some of our favorite Christian artists were there. Do you know what they did? And do you know what they said? Absolutely nothing. They sat through it, and they didn't say anything about it afterwards. What does that tell you about the state of contemporary Christian music nowadays? They did nothing. That was like the extreme exact opposite of holiness. Now that's the extreme opposite, but obviously holiness entails more than just rejecting these blatant large evils, right? Holiness is choosing to live apart from the world's values and ethics and choosing to live according to biblical ethics no matter how unpopular it is. I choose to follow the Bible, live the Bible, live for Christ, live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yeah, the world isn't going to like it, but I don't really care what the world says. Now, Peter gives us two specific descriptions about this holiness that marks our lifestyles. First, it means that we're not conformed to our past. We're not conformed to our past. Verse 14 tells us not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. What he's saying is don't live like you used to before you were saved, right? Before you received this new life in Christ, you lived a certain way, don't do that. Don't return to what your life was like before you were saved. The people in the churches that you know, he's writing to, they, they used to be pagan idolaters and you know, they had their own form of worship. And he's writing to them, don't return to your idols and don't return to the type of worship that you did with your idols. Now, for some of us, that might be literal because before we came to Christ, we may have been part of a cult, we may have been part of a false religion, and so we had an idol and we worshiped in that certain way. But for most of us, it means that whatever it is that we held as being the most valuable thing in our life before we came to Christ, whatever was the center of our obsession Whatever actions and attitudes came with that, because that, that, that obsession was our idol. And all these actions and attitudes were centered on that idol. Don't return to that. Don't do that. Because it's like a dog returning to his vomit. Whatever you did in your life before Christ that is not pleasing to Christ, you don't go back to it. You make a clean break. You move on. Instead of giving, away, giving way to the flesh. But now I'm led by the Spirit. I'm not led by the flesh. I'm led by the Spirit. 
And so we're not conformed to our former life. We're not conformed to our past. But next, what he does say, kind of in a more positive sense, is we're conformed to God's character. We're conformed to God's character. In verse 16, Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44 to describe the holiness that we're called to. We are to be holy just as God is holy. God is holy, you be holy. God is completely set apart, the creator from his creation. He is completely different. You be completely different. So what it tells us is that God himself is the standard of holiness. He's the one that determines holiness because he's the standard. God's standard is himself. It's his being, it's his character, it's who he is. Everything that makes God God is what determines holiness. God is separate from sin and wickedness and evil because he is perfectly right and just and, and pure. And so be holy as God is holy. But then, you know, we hear that and then we think, well, that's impossible. You know, we get a little overwhelmed. I mean, that, that's impossible. That's an impossible standard for humans to live by when we're still in the flesh. You're right. We have no power in ourselves to come anywhere near that level of holiness. But that doesn't mean that God lowers the standard. You know, it's not like God says, well, you know, here's humanity. They, they can't meet my standard of right and good and just. So, you know what? I'm going to lower the standard. No, he can't do that. He can't deny himself. God is God. He's not going to change. So he's not going to change the standard of holiness. He's not going to lower the bar so to speak. We are to be holy as he is holy. I can't do that. That's why God sent Jesus Christ, right? When we fail to live to his standard, when we fail to live in his holiness, which is all the time, when we fail to live up to that, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our lack of holiness. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And we believe in him and then we're given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit infuses Christ's holiness in us and then the Holy Spirit empowers us to live according to holiness. In this life, it's not going to be perfect. But it is desirable and to a certain point it's obtainable. Our lifestyle is marked by holiness. We're separate from the world. We're separate from its ways. Right? So our conduct is, is, is marked by this holiness, our thinking, it's on the future hope. And then third and finally, and very quickly, our motivation is found in divine honor. Our motivation is found in divine honor. In, verses, in verse 17, we're told to conduct our life according to fear. The fear of God. While we're on this earth, we are to fear God. The the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. Both the Old and New Testaments call on the people of the earth to fear God. And so we're to fear God. Now, for the Christian, the one who is a child of God, it's not the, you know, the terror that we think of when we think of the word fear. For those who aren't Christians, for those who have not come to Christ, yeah, I hope it, does terror. it is terror in your life so that it leads to your repentance. But when you're a child of God, it's not this terror, like, uh, it's honor, it's reverence, it is respect that is due to our eternal God. And, and, and because he's holy, he's not going to compromise on his holiness. And so the fear of God, 
motivates us to live a lifestyle of holiness. And, of course, we know we fall short, and so that's why we run to Christ. But God is a God to be revered, to be held high. We can't just treat God lightly. You can't treat God lightly. I mean, if you do, you're acting the fool. God is not to be dealt lightly with. So when I think, when I think of the fear of God and, and maybe kind of a way to grasp the concept, I think of C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the book, and I think it did make it into the movie as well, but in the book, Susan and Lucy, they're getting ready to meet Aslan uh, the lion. You know, Aslan the lion, he's the type of Christ, representative of Christ. But they're having the, this exchange with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. So Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are trying to uh, prepare the children for this encounter. And so this is how it's written. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I, I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When God is perfect and we're not, no, God is not safe. He is a God to be feared. He is a God to be revered. He is a God to be honored because he is good. He might not be safe, but he's good. And, and Peter talks about, if you want to call him, two reasons why this honor and fear is due him. First is because of who he is. In verse 17, Peter points out two specific roles that cause us to fear and honor God. He is first father to those who know him through Jesus Christ. You know, a father loves his children, but a fa father also has the power of discipline, which is for the child's own good. I mean, you're supposed to use discipline for the child's own good, so they learn. And that needs to be in the back of the child's mind. My father loves me more than anything, but my father also can discipline me if I disobey. Scripture attests to the fact that God disciplines his children because it's for their own good, so that they're corrected. But if you are not disciplined by the Lord, then you're not his child. That's also what Scripture says. If the Lord doesn't discipline you, you don't belong to him. But he's the father. You revere him as the father who holds the power of discipline. But then Peter also points out the fact that God is also judge. I mean, you don't ever approach an earthly judge with nonchalance. There's a healthy respect for the authority that the judge wields. I mean, if we do that for earthly judges, how much more are we going to do that for our, a heavenly judge? And everyone is going to be judged one day. Believers are going to be judged for reward. Unbelievers judged for condemnation. But God is both Father and He is judge. And so He is due reverence. But it's not only because of who He is. Next, we fear Him, revere Him, honor Him because of what He's done. Verses 18 through 21 they tell a wonderful truth about what God did for humanity. It says that God ransomed us. That means that what the word means is he bought us with a price. He bought us back with a price. Our life was lost 
We were idolaters. We were separated from him. And then he bought us back with the blood of Christ. Some translations might say redeemed. God himself paid the price to bring us back. God himself paid the price to free us from the penalty of sin. God himself paid the price to free us from the power of sin. And what was the price that he paid? It wasn't earthly things. You weren't bought with silver and gold. All these things that we hold dear and valuable on the earth. No, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. All those earthly things are nothing to God. God doesn't care about silver and gold. Ooh, we make such a big deal about silver and gold. God's like, eh, that's nothing. The most valuable substance in all of the universe is the blood of Jesus Christ. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he says here that <coughs> the Father foreknew him throughout all eternity before the foundation of the world. He was already set to be the Savior of the world. He died on the cross, but he was raised from the dead and because of his obedience to the Father, Jesus is given glory. He, he is the object of our faith. Think about this. We fear God because he did not even spare his own son. But he willingly gave his son to save us. Yeah, he's due some glory and honor and reverence. I mean, are you going to treat it like a light thing? Are you just going to, eh, yeah, Jesus died, big deal. Yeah, it's like the big deal in the entire universe. So it better mean something to you. It better, it better be what forms and shapes how you approach God and what you think of God and then how you are to act in light of the fact that He gave you this new life. He gave you this gift. Yeah, you better fear Him. You better revere him because there is no other way to come to him. God is feared because of who he is and because of what he has done. That's our lifestyle. Let me close with this thought. You know, a long time ago, back in the 80s and 90s, that's a long time ago now, you know, when they start calling the music that you grew up with classic, you know, you're old. So bad, there was this TV show, classic, back in the 80s and 90s, called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. You know, and what that show did is that they looked at the lives of celebrities and athletes and wealthy, how, how these people lived. Let's face it, their lifestyles were marked by hedonism, worldliness, and arrogant elitism. That's who these people were. Or as Robin Leach would describe it, it's a life of champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Y'all, those old like me, you remember that, right? But their lifestyle was reflective of who they were. Think of this. Their lifestyle was reflective of who they were. They were lost, worldly people whose God was their riches. And that was put on display week after week. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous by Robin Leach. Who are we? We are elect exiles. We are Christian pilgrims. We are different. And that means our lifestyle is different. Our lifestyle is different. Our mindset is where our we place our hope in the future deliverance that Christ will give us. We live in holiness because God 
is holy. We fear the God who didn't even spare his own son to save us. That's the lifestyle of a Christian pilgrim. Christian, if that isn't your lifestyle, come to the altar today and pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you to live that lifestyle, to live like someone who has new life in Christ. I want to invite all of us today, too, to come to the altar and pray for revival, the revival that's happening at Asbury, to come here and to touch us. And we would be revived so that we would have the desire to live in this lifestyle instead of living for the world. But if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I mean, your life is of the world. I mean, this is, this is your life and your end is destruction. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given light and you are given life and you come to Christ, you will not be the same. Your mindset will be different, your life will be different, your attitude will be different, everything will be different because old things pass away. All things are made new. And in our day and age, we need some of that newness. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministry is on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and God bless.